0: welcome to standard chartered money insights a podcast series by standard chartered bank that brings you market views and insights on the go welcome to standard chartered money insights i'm abhilash narayan a senior investment strategist from our chief investment office and on this episode of the podcast we will dive into the topic of companies in esg transition Now, joining me today for this conversation, I have the pleasure of welcoming Thomas Morris, Product Specialist of the Global Growth Equities Team at Allianz Global Investors. Now, typically, when we talk about transition, we tend to think of energy transition and we tend to think of oil and gas companies. However, ESG transition can perhaps be applied more broadly to say that companies of today need to transition into more sustainable business models to position themselves to be successful in future. And this is especially important in today's environment when there is a lot of focus on sustainability-related issues and we have seen consumer preferences are changing. Now, just as an example, uh, I saw a video titled uh, The Story of a Plastic Bottle, which you yourself can search on YouTube which talks about how large food and beverage companies are responsible for polluting the environment too with their single-use plastics. So there is a a lot of attention uh, in terms of ESG spilling over to other sectors as well. And hence, we think that transition isn't just about oil and gas companies, but it is about all the industries. So Thomas, uh, moving over to you. What does sustainability look like in industries besides oil and gas? Can you just share some examples with us?
1: Yes, and uh, thank you, Amalash. It's it's great to be here with with you today. Um, let me first start by sharing some statistics. Now, large corporates are without question key players in delivering a transition to a sustainable global economy. Um, if you look at statistics from the Organisation for Economic Development, so the OECD, in 2014, they found that multinational companies accounted for around a third of all global gross output and over half of world exports. And those numbers have almost certainly increased since then. Now, this means that the sheer scale of their touch points with consumers, employees, and society at large represents an enormous potential for impact. And this impact could be positive or negative. Now, this fact speaks to the founding principle of our sustainable investments. Our goal is to own companies which have a sector-leading approach to managing their sustainability profiles in all of their facets. And it's worth underscoring at this point that while environment is currently getting the most focus at the moment, and rightly so, because it's very pressing, um, if you look at media and social media, everything out there, ESG performance includes, as well as that E, the social, the S, and governance, the G, aspects. And those could be interactions with local communities, management of employees, executive compensation, or even treatment of shareholders. So these are companies, therefore, that can lead the way in taking a sustainable approach to doing business regardless of industry. And while their footprints may be some of the biggest in the world, they are also the companies with the resources and scale to implement the most progressive policies. Now, because we at Allianz Global Investors consider ESG in terms of their material impact on businesses, the factors that we consider to be important from a sustainability perspective will change depending on each sector. For example, the environmental impact of mining stock will be far more insignificant to its bottom line and shareholder base than, say, how employees are incentivized and recruited. In contrast, the reverse will be true for a financial company operating in a highly competitive environment. Governance factors, though, such as how remuneration for top executives is structured, we would judge that equally across sectors. So with that context in mind, let's take a look, by way of starter, at the technology industry. And I'm conscious that for for compliance reasons, we can't name specific companies, uh, but we will try to sort of give you a rough idea of of what we're talking about. Covering each E, S, and G factor, we would consider a sustainability leader in technology to be one that has, for example, a high degree of renewable energy consumption, given the energy intensity of, of its products and services, a progressive approach to recycling hardware and sourcing materials policies to recruit some of the best talent given the need for innovation, um, proper HR management to look after existing employees, and then finally, an industry-leading measure or, or approach to cybersecurity, and a one-share, one-vote structure, which is often a rarity in, in technology companies, particularly more recent startups. So that's you know, ES&G, some, some top-tier examples. Now, one of the top holdings in our portfolios has all of these characteristics, and it is in fact famously committed not only to becoming a net zero business by 2030, so that's within less than nine years' time now, but also to reversing all of its greenhouse gas emissions since its creation in 1975 by 2050. Now, if you think that this company has quarterly revenues of over $40 billion, And then what that actually means in terms of the impact that it has, it's impossible to argue that a company taking this approach is not driving the shift towards a sustainable economy.
0: Thanks, Thomas. Uh, That's really insightful, uh, taking the example of technology industry and seeing how various ESG parameters can be applied uh, to, to that sector. Now, maybe let's talk about a few other sectors to better understand how these parameters can differ sector to sector. Uh, how about consumer goods industry? How are some of the leaders in sustainability differentiating themselves there?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, in consumer goods, the characteristics we prioritize do change slightly. So we would still welcome, for example, good cybersecurity Renewable energy consumption and HR policies. But these would perhaps be secondary in a discussion with management to say how raw materials are being sourced ethically, what measures to improve biodiversity the company has if it operates in, say, agriculture, or how it is ensuring that packaging is sustainable, um, whether the nutritional content or chemical makeup of its products is to the long term benefit of those who consume them. Now, a well-known consumer goods giant is frequently perceived as a problematic stock due to its reliance on supply chains in emerging markets and the extremely high visibility of its end products. Yet in both respects, the company has clear, progressive measures in place. The company implements responsible sourcing standards across all of its 14 key raw materials, and this involves a detailed mapping and risk assessment of all of its key suppliers as well as disclosure of their names. Then, at the consumer end, the firm is committed to making all packaging recyclable or reusable by 2025. Now, this trend is apparent across the consumer goods sector. Often, the highest profile companies that are labelled as offenders are in fact the ones with the most progressive policies. The fact is, though, that the power of shareholder scrutiny and public opinion has been such to make large listed corporates take the necessary action. Similarly, there is also a recognition that better management of ESG risks feeds through the bottom line. In other words, mitigating reputational risk, treating employees better, and a more efficient use of resources all makes for a superior use of invested capital.
0: You're right. I mean uh, that leaders and losers in e- that there are leaders and losers in each industry. And you know when we choose to invest sustainably, it means choosing to invest in companies with good ESG practices that are leading the pack. Now, in addition, we've also seen uh, managers of sustainable funds invest in companies that may not necessarily be rated very well on ESG metrics. But we've seen asset managers, uh, you know, have an engagement plan. And they've implemented uh, those plans to transition the companies to better sustainable practices. Now, I know we have touched upon engagement with you in another conversation, but uh, do you have anything more to add on how you've seen asset managers drive change in behavior in companies, especially in large companies where, as you mentioned earlier, that change can be a bit more difficult?
1: Yes. Now, The first thing to say is that global corporates really are modern day giants. Their supply chains are complex, their success has been hard won, and as a result it can be difficult to advocate for changes which are perceived as threatening that success. So even when you have successfully made the case for those changes, actually pushing them through can be a multi-year process which impacts millions of smaller players with potentially unforeseen consequences. In other words, there are very few quick wins. And as an asset manager, this can also make telling the story difficult. The second thing to say is that engaging with these companies is a far more effective means of driving change than simply divesting. The energy sector is a prime example. At Alliance Global Investors, we firmly believe, and indeed can show, that speaking to company management has had a tangible impact in driving the policies of large corporates. The alternative of simply selling the shares risks leaving the companies in the hands of far less scrupulous owners. We've seen this in the case of North Sea oil companies, where private equity firms have been happy to access the cash flows without the scrutiny that comes with a listed corporate. Now, we did touch on this in our last conversation, um, and we specifically spoke about the successful engagements we've had with a certain energy company. But fortunately, the portfolio is full of similar examples. Um, In the financial sector, uh, an industry that we haven't really talked about so far, we've had successive meetings with senior executives at an insurance and asset management company. With this stock, our concerns boiled down to two key issues. The first was around KPIs, so key performance incentives, um, and the second was around comparative peer groups. Now, this company was essentially failing to disclose the metrics that its executives were being measured against before putting remuneration to a vote so at the same time it was measuring group-wide performance against a self-selected group of peers which because of their business mix was ultimately inappropriate this made it very difficult for us as a firm to gauge performance and understand how we should vote in order to approve or otherwise um, vote against remuneration. Over the course of several years, by representing our concerns to senior management and voting our proxies accordingly, we were able to drive a change which improved this situation. And while it's certainly not as headline-grabbing as reducing CO2 emissions at a large oil company, it is in many ways no less meaningful. All of this is to say that engagement and driving change is not limited to one particular sector. It's a wholesale phenomenon that every company should be, and most of them are, embracing. And it has been fashionable to be cynical about the area or or complain about a lack of generally accepted rules or standards. But I do believe that that is changing. Slowly, regimes like the European Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations SFDR, or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, so the TCFDs, all of these acronyms and regulations, they will make ESG transparency the commonly accepted standard, and we're already in the privileged position of being asked for our views and contributions towards company strategy. As regulators make ESG disclosure the norm, companies will be desperate to know how they can meet those standards, to the satisfaction of shareholders, but also society at large.
0: Thank you, Thomas. Uh, as you mentioned towards the end, uh, driving change is not limited to just one particular sector. And we, while we have seen uh, sustainable thematic funds have risen in popularity, uh, investors can also consider driving change through non-thematic sustainable funds, which perhaps also helps to diversify uh, and improve the profile of their investment portfolio. Uh, now, before we end today's conversation, uh, Thomas, do you have any thoughts uh, on the topic mentioned uh, just b- before?
1: Yeah. All I would say, Ablash is is this. Um, we are quite often asked as sustainable investment practitioners whether sustainable investing is a fad or something that is here to stay. Now, clearly I am a bit biased, Um but the degree of subtlety that I would introduce into the discussion is that ultimately, I think we as an industry are all heading in the same direction. And I touched on this a bit in my previous answer. What a lot of people are currently arguing about is the extent to which ESG analysis determines a stock's inclusion in a portfolio. You know, Is it good? Is it bad? Should I own it or not? Ultimately, I, my view is that This decision is down to portfolio managers to make, and then it's for clients to decide where they want to put their money. But what has changed is that we are already seeing an acceptance across the industry that incorporating E, S, and G analysis into stock analysis is important, whoever you are and whatever your process is. And as standards globally come into closer alignment, I believe that we will see an almost universal acceptance of this fact.
0: Thanks, Thomas, for joining us for this conversation. Now, that's all that we have in this episode at Standard Chartered Money Insights. If you would like to learn more or read our publications, please visit our website at sc.com under Market Insights. As a reminder, if you enjoyed our discussion, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast.